Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast. This is 1121B of You, the Owner's Manual. Our guest today is Dr. Eric A. Prather, P-R-A-T-H-E-R, talking about sleep. His book, actually, is called The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. So um, we, as usual, are brought to you by both the greatagereboot.com and the app from that site, Reboot Your Age, and by um, Life's First Naturals, lifefirstnaturals.com, where you can find out the randomized double-blind studies that that company has uh, done or, or fostered relating to both true biotics and bovine colostrum. We'll talk more about those after we talk about the sleep prescription with Dr. Eric A. Prather. And his website, by the way, is A-R-I-C Prather, P-R-A-T-H-E-R.com. Eric, how did you happen to go into sleep medicine? What caused that? Yeah, I mean, so my, my training is in something called psychoneuroimmunology, which is a, a field, some field of, of psychology and medicine that focuses on kind of behavioral and psychological factors that impact the immune system. And so I was actually doing work in the context of stress. But uh, as I kind of proceeded in doing that, I became really fascinated with uh, what was happening in the sleep field and the fact that, you know, a lot of the things that move around the immune system or our metabolism, when people are stressed, you also see in the context of uh, insufficient sleep. And, you know, certainly we know that sleep and stress are kind of bi-directionally linked. And so, you know, I kind of just went down on this path because we, we know some good treatments for improving people's sleep, which in turn can impact their health. And so, um, you know, in doing that and then also getting training, I'm a clinical psychologist training in what's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. I really saw what happens when you give someone their sleep back, you know, it really changes so much about their life. And so I was, I was hooked from there on, you know, both in the, in the science, but also in the clinical space. And um, people will want to know where you're located. Yeah. So I'm at the university of California, San Francisco. I've been here for over a decade. Uh, you know, run a research program there, as well as uh, a clinic focused on treating people with insomnia. So is, has it moved from Langley Porter to the new campus, or is uh, psychotherapeutics still at Langley Porter? Yeah, you, you, know, the, you know the layout, so right. So, so we were at Langley. I went to medical school there. Oh, right. Yeah, great. So yeah, so, so Langley Porter is still there, but they are in the midst of tearing it down. And so we just uh, in March of this uh, year, moved to the the Nancy Friend Pritzker Psychiatry Building, uh, a beautiful new building. And what's really great about that is that uh, unlike at Langley Porter, where we just had kind of a small sleep lab with just two beds, we now have this beautiful state-of-the-art new sleep laboratory in the basement. And so we're able to kind of ramp up a lot of the research that we're doing, which is super exciting. So... Um UC San Francisco is one of the premier uh, medical institutions in the country. I'm glad to uh, relate since uh, I have a heritage there as well. 
Um, and um, so you've been practicing 12 years and you linked um, what I think are the, is one of the major problems that I hear about in sleep is that people go to sleep, they get to sleep fine, and then they wake up and can't get back to sleep because of something stressful they're thinking about. So how do, how do you help those people? Is it, and, and what we try and do, and tell me if this is correct, and, and you have a great section on stress-busting micro-breaks, so is, is, is that how we should handle it? Is that the correct way is to get them help with stress management and that will help their sleep from that problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we take kind of a multi-prong approach. I mean, I think in this book and kind of in our clinic in general, you know, we think about sleep as, you know, preparing for that is not just, you know, what you do right before you get, in, get into bed. It actually starts right when you wake up and, and things that go on about your day to kind of put you in the best position to be able to sleep well. And so, you know, the, um, you know, part of that is stress management during the day, right? Kind of like being kind to yourself and carving out time to allow your body to kind of not be at high alert all the, all throughout the day, right? Cause that can often seep into our night. But I mean, you know, certainly people will have these experiences where they wake up in the middle of the night, you know, sleep is fragmented and your brain kind of just turns on right? And, and the unfortunate thing is we often don't, um, you know, when, when our mind is worrying in the middle of the night, it's usually not about kind of the best parts of our day or the best parts of our lives, right? It's, it's worries about kind of what's happening tomorrow or what I should have done better in the past and that kind of stuff. And we were kind of the, the worst versions of ourselves and our brains at that time. And, and so one of the things that's really critical for c- trying to work on that for someone who has insomnia is first making sure that they're not doing that in the bed, Right. So what happens when people have insomnia is that, you know, their their relationship with the bed becomes really fractured um, and and actually develops into what's called a conditioned arousal that when you wake up in the middle of the night, your brain immediately starts moving into this kind of negative kind of ruminative space. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, your body's confused about what it's supposed to be doing at night. And so First and foremost, if people are starting to experience that, you want to take that out of the bed. We say, give you, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, get, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever, give yourself, you know, 20 minutes to fall back asleep. But if that doesn't happen and your brain is really active, then you want to get out of the bed and do something really quiet and restful to get you back into that relaxation state. And what that, what a person does for that is a little bit personalized. Like, of course, we have kind of general things that seem to work for people, like oftentimes reading or kind of watching television that you've seen before or listening to music, maybe listening to your podcast, things that people enjoy, but, um, you know, also... Wait a second. <laughs> I bet, you know, we, we want to get people into, you know, a, a, like, a, like a low arousal but positive valence experience, right? Like things they enjoy doing but aren't so engaged that they, they you know, it, it leaves them kind of in a worse state than they might have been in otherwise. And so, you know, we want, you know, people to kind of get into that relaxation state and then get back in bed. Now, of course, you know, that takes time and people often are a little bit hesitant to do that because they don't, you know, they, they think that, well, you know, that's going to ensure that I'm awake longer. It's, it's true that it's challenging, but actually, you know, all the data suggests that this is just a critical part of repairing this relationship with the bed. Now, 
oftentimes people will just lay in bed and what can they do to, to help themselves kind of relax in that case? And what often is, is helpful are kind of the things that we hear about. So maybe, you know, mindfulness meditation, like there's lots of apps that help kind of calm the body, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, uh, four, seven, eight breathing has been shown to be effective in that way. Um, anything that can kind of ramp up that parasympathetic nervous system for you to let go, you know, sleeping is really about letting go. And one of the challenges with insomnia is people are constantly trying to pull sleep towards them, right? They, they, they're being really effortful and intentional about trying to get that sleep. But sleep is, is something that is the absence of doing. It's something that washes over us. And so, you know, the more we can kind of engage our brain in things that are maybe distracting or positive and calming, the more likely we, it'll allow sleep to do its thing. Now, let me go in and set a set of different questions, if you will. One of the sleep specialists, I'm at the Cleveland Clinic, and one of the sleep specialists here, um, Michelle Durup, often says the key to sleep um, and sleep success is getting up at the same time every morning, no matter what. How do you feel about that idea? Yeah, so that is, you know, if there was one thing that I could tell people, and, you know, Michelle is obviously is, is an expert, and certainly I know, know her work, um, it, you know, is that is the number one thing that I tell people, is that you need to set a stable wake time seven days a week, and part of that has to do with kind of entraining your circadian clock, right? Like, uh, you know, we really want to make sure that it's aligned and predictable. One of the things that we know about how the body works is predictability makes it more efficient, right? But the other reason that people set their, their wake time, in addition to the circadian clock, is the other thing that drives our sleep is what's called our homeostatic sleep drive. And I like to think of it as a balloon that fills up throughout the day with sleepiness. And so as it, as you set your clock, you wake up and your balloon is flat, you go throughout the day and it becomes kind of fills up with the sleepiness to the point where when it gets to its kind of maximum amount, you know, people have these sleepiness cues and go to bed. Now we can't control when we go to sleep, right? Like we have to wait for sleep to happen to, to feel those sleepiness cues. And people with insomnia feel a lot of pressure to be asleep by a certain time, lots of cognitions about like, if I don't go to sleep by this time, this X and Y and Z will happen. Um, the one thing we can control is we can control when we wake up, right? So we set that clock, we entrain our circadian rhythm, and we, you know, ideally try to get some sunlight in our eyes right away so that we can shut down that melatonin production. Um, and that seems to put things in just a better situation for being predictable for your body and kind of take some of the effort out about kind of where it should be in time and space. And so that, and, and when people don't do that, right, when they kind of sleep in later, um, the, oftentimes they wake up and their balloon is like extra flat and it takes longer for it to fill up with sleepiness. And it kind of ha has a feed forward effect um, on the following uh, night. Well, let me, let me tell you why I, I have, a little problem with this. I, you know, as, as physicians, we often sacrifice sleep for the rest of the things we do in our life, whether it is family occasions or playing our favorite sport 
or, um, if you will, going out with people or getting our work done. And so I, for at least uh, for my early part of my career until age uh, probably 70, I slept uh, five hours a night on weekdays and maybe six on weekends. And uh, obviously I built up a huge sleep debt and stupid behavior over the years. I now sleep uh, at a regular schedule of about seven hours on weekdays, but I still get two extra hours or an hour and a half extra, eight and a half hours each weekend day. And instead of getting up at 5 a.m., which I do uh, normally during the week, I now get up at uh, about eight on weekends. Um, what, sh what symptoms should I watch out for um, in, uh, as, as a hazard from this? And by the way, I'm telling you this is my own story, but I deal with patients in executive health who all tell me the same type of behavior. Yeah, you know, I mean, and it's it's definitely a common one. I think, you know, there's certainly a common um, part of the culture uh, with respect to sleeping in on weekends, right? Like, I, I, I always try to say, like, I'm not the fun police around, like, you know, how you can live your life and, like, what what you can do. I mean, I, I think what's important and what, you know, what, what I think is relevant to this book and, and for all the type of treatment work that we do is it's, you know, it's really, if you're having problems with your sleep, right? Like it sounds to me like you might be a really strong sleeper and you probably do accrue a bit of a sleep debt throughout the week and that's normal. And then people have, you know, in some cases have the opportunity to make that up. And that's what, kind of sleeping in on the weekend does. Now, if you start to notice difficulty with your sleep, and um, then that, that's like one of the first places where you want to begin to address it, right? I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't speak to the uh, you know, potential question of like, okay, well, what, what happens if you're kind of getting insufficient sleep for a long period of time? Yep, but if, in other words, if I want to get up at the same time, in other words, 5 a.m., and I want to catch up on sleep, that would mean I'd go to bed instead of at, uh, if you will, 10 p.m., I'd go to bed at, what, an hour and a half earlier, 8.30 p.m. Is that how I should do it? Well, so I think it, you know, with, with all of these sorts of things, it's really about how you're functioning during the day. Like, for instance, during the week, do you find yourself napping or kind of have this urgency to nap that you have to fight off? Um, you know, for, for instance, does that happen for you? Uh, no. Okay. So, you know, so the, the, I have an exciting enough, I, I am <laughs> passionate and excited enough about my job, um, that I, I am, uh, if anything, uh, have to drag myself to bed. Right. 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 And I mean, I think, you know, part of it is like, you know, maybe there's a way to meet in the middle with that. I mean, it's possible and, and, and honestly probable that if you tried to move your bedtime an hour and a half early for five days a week to cut down on those extra hours that you get on the other two days, you probably wouldn't fall asleep as early as you'd think, right? Like, you know, you're, you're, you know, there's your circadian rhythm that we have to contend with, right? And maybe it's not at the optimal amount to kind of push you towards sleepiness if you moved your bedtime earlier. Um, you know, it sounds like, you know, when, when people make up sleep debt, uh, and we know this from kind of laboratory-based studies that 
when they do that, they don't end up kind of making up all the sleep that they needed, right? That they lost, right? Your body can compensate in part because it changes the architecture of your sleep. So for instance, if we deprive people of sleep for a night, um, they don't sleep double the amount the next night, but we, they, they sleep a little bit more for sure, which is kind of like what happens with weekends. But we also see changes in kind of the depth of their sleep, the amount of slow wave sleep that makes up that night. And in a, in a sense that the body is trying to compensate for all of that. Now, it's true that there may be a long-term biological cost of having this kind of what's called social jet lag, where you're kind of depriving yourself uh, during the week and making up on the weekends. That we don't know conclusively from the literature, though there is some, are some signs pointing to the fact that like chronic insufficient sleep on average, uh, seems to put people at risk for a whole host of negative health outcomes. Now, of course, there are lots of things that we can do in our lives to help compensate, right? Like around our diet, around our exercise, maybe around our social relationships, other things as well, you know, adequate, uh, you know, medical care, all of those things can be helpful and will certainly impact the likelihood that someone will be in that category of risk. But um, it, uh, there's also a challenge within the culture around kind of people doing what, what you've done, you know, over, over the course of your career and right. Uh, kind of in some sense, prioritizing other things in your life, which is understandable, but at a cost of, of shorting the sleep. Right. And, and the hope is that through this book and through kind of, kind of working in this sleep space that we really begin to kind of shift some of the culture, uh, the collective culture around sleep as an investment, um, for all the things that you want to do better during the day, right? We know that when people get adequate amounts... And, and I'm going to yeah, interrupt there and just say, um, I think you're absolutely right. This is an outstanding book. Um, and there is a compounding effect to health choices, including sleep. That is, the earlier you do it right, whether it's managing cholesterol or managing blood pressure or um, doing things for your immune system, one of which is sleep, and that's how uh, Dr. Prather got into this, as he said, um, there is a tremendous benefit. I'm gonna read off just some of the chapters. Um, set your internal clock, ease off the gas, energize, but do it right. Worry early, I like that one. That's a great chapter, by the way, for me. You are not a computer, you just can't shut down, which talks about preparation for sleep. Retrain your brain and stay up late. Um, restricting the sleep you get. This is a incredibly powerful, it's a paperback that is an easy read, um, has action steps, has a test with it to let you know how you're doing and to follow you. So go to Eric, A-R-I-C, Prather, P-R-A-T-H-E-R, uh, com, or go to Amazon and order it. It actually is probably the most um, accessible sleep book I've had the privilege of looking at. And as you know, we've covered several other authors with sleep on the program. The name is Eric Prather, P-R-A-T-H-E-R. The sleep prescription is the title, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. We, as usual, are brought to you by lifesfirstnaturals.com the makers of bovine colostrum, an important choice if you take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, 
to help preserve your bowel functioning and lining. Um, go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, uh, and look at the data. They have really good data in both uh, people who take this in a randomized double-blind study in animals who they've given non-steroidals, including aspirin to, showing how the bovine colostrum helps prevent the decrease in mucosal surface, as well as if you're a real athlete, a marathon runner, someone who does something seriously for athletics, it helps preserve bowel and immune function after that. The other medication is, is a supplement that they also make called TrueBiotics. It's one of the three probiotics that I believe um, I take with regularity, TrueBiotics. The other sponsor, of course, is Life, is the Great Age Reboot. TheGreatAgeReboot.com is where you can find our app, Reboot Your Age. Thanks very much, Dr. Brather, for such an illuminating book on sleep. Obviously, you heard how much he understands. Um, he is a professor at UC San Francisco, one of our preeminent medical schools. So you'd expect him to know um, an awful lot about sleep. And clearly, this book is written in a way that makes it accessible to all of us who aren't experts in sleep. It's, I think, close to having Dr. Prather in your pocket. Um, Caitlin, thank you for engineering. And remember, you can go Eric, A-R-I-C, Prather, P-R-A-T-H-E-R.com for more information. You probably can even find out about his lab as well. Thanks again. We'll be back next week. This has been 1121B. The B's are always great guests like Dr. Prather, the A's, the latest medical news of the week, and what it means for you. Thanks again.